You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You always hear these stories, and I've never personally experienced it, where you start doing something just for your own pleasure, of course, yeah. and then it's like you turn away and you turn back, and suddenly it's this huge thing like that's got to be an exciting feeling i originally thought i'll make some jokes on this blog i sent a link to one friend of mine saying check this out and apparently he passed it around to other people that's how it started going so i've got dan lyons dan thank you for coming on the show you have a fascinating career Thank you for having me. And I mean, I've been a fan of yours now that I realize it. I mean, I re first off, you had a best-selling book last year, Disrupted, but I'm going to tell what that book's about. You were a screenwriter and co-producer, you'll have to describe that, on the TV show Silicon Valley, which is one of my favorite shows. By the way, I worked at HBO One, so it's oh, really funny. Did? I went to your LinkedIn, and it says you both worked at HBO, even though uh. you, know, you were 
Yeah. I was an employee. You were, you know, a writer. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I didn't know who to say I worked for. I wanted to list that as a job on LinkedIn. I was like, well, who did I actually work for? I, I don't know. There's some production company, I think, for a show, right? But I mean, I don't know what they call it. So I just put HBO. Might have been HBO. Might have been HBO as the production. I guess ultimately they're paying for us. Yeah. So, yeah. so, and uh, before, so Disrupted, you know, mentioned Silicon Valley, but it's also about your time at, what was a so-called hot tech company that IPO'd called HubSpot. Many people use it. They have, they have uh, 28,000 customers now. When you were there, they had 10,000 customers. Oh, is it 28,000? Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, uh, you taught, the book's fascinating because uh, we're kind of moving backwards in your career, so people will see why it's fascinating in a second, but it's fascinating because you were double the age of the average employee there and all the culture shock and, and a kind of a really interesting no holds barred, uh, almost attack on the tech IPO ecosystem. But uh, before that, you were at Newsweek, Forbes, all these old media companies. You were a journalist, and right when it seemed like things were going well on your media career, media, of course, has been turned upside down. You were laid off. You were scared. You didn't know what to do. You ended up at. Read Write, then HubSpot, and then of course Silicon Valley. So now, now that I went backwards, I want to start at the beginning. You were at Newsweek, and you get the call. You're, you're what? You were 52. Yeah. You were 52 years old. Okay, right. I'm 49. If I got the call that at 52 is like the worst time. To, I don't. I don't mean to panic you any further. <laughs> 52 is like the worst time to lose your job. Yeah, because so, you can't get another one. Yeah, because because yeah. also you're you've priced yourself out of the market, right. right? So you're 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 getting paid like what a a fifty two year old at Newsweek should be getting paid after thirty years of career, and but they can they know they can hire four or five kids to do not what you do, but that's what they're being told to to do. Yeah, and so you get the call. What happens? That was literally what my boss said, and she was your friend. She's my friend. I've known her for ages. I've known her since the 80s. She had been at Newsweek, then left Newsweek. I joined Newsweek. She came back after Tina Brown took over Newsweek. It was sort of a different Newsweek than the Newsweek I joined, you know, because they had went through a couple of sales and whatever. Uh, anyway, they always say to you, they want this. So, you know, it was like not her decision. To right, and, you call, and you called BS on her. You said, who is they? Yeah. Because she was the executive editor. Yeah. And she's like, um, I think they just want to hire five kids right out, take your salary and hire five kids right out of college. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I mean, I'm a business journalist. I write about companies. I knew the financial reality of the world I was in and it wasn't good. And I kind of thought if I were running this place, that's probably what I'd do too. I'd, I maybe, you know, the people who left, when Newsweek went over to the, and merged with the Daily Beast, most people Almost everybody from Newsweek took a package and left. And for some reason, they wanted me to stay. I would have been better off to take a package because those people got nice packages when they left. You know? could, could you have then, I know you tried to negotiate and they kind of just shut everything down. Yeah. But could you have, like, if I were you then, I probably would have threatened to sue. I Here's what, and not that I'm a litigious person, I've never yeah, sued or yeah, been yeah. sued in my life, but I would have, I would have had, look, here's a paper trail where you, Encouraged me to not take the package. I feel like you did that for your own economic reasons and not mine. You owe me the package you gave everyone else. Oh, I, I, that didn't occur to me. And I, I was thinking quite the opposite that if I do that, 
anyway, would it be an age bias case, right? I don't think anybody ever wins those. And then, then my, my real fear was like, you'll never work again because now you'll be marked as a complainer. So you might get some penny ante settlement out of them, but it won't be enough to live on forever and you'll never work again. So I thought I'll just shut my mouth, go get another job. I also, I think, kind of naively didn't think of myself as old. And I kind of thought, I'll get another job. I'll find something. But, you know, I wouldn't think of you as old either. Like, if you're 52, I'm 49. I don't think of myself as old. Right. But, yeah. But, but but you know, I oh, I forgot to mention one other thing, which is that, and I, this is why I've been a fan of yours for over a decade, you're also, uh, you were anonymously fake Steve Jobs. So right. you had this hugely popular blog that was hilarious, yeah. uh, you know, pretending to be Steve Jobs and all these crazy scenarios that you would put Steve Jobs in, like where he's just this like arrogant narcissist, you know, employer that was just hilarious. And then you eventually stopped it, but you kind of had this degree of of fame as well. And and I would think that they wouldn't. You you were kind of you know a, a key resource for them. Yeah, I, I mean, when I originally went to Newsweek. It was the old Newsweek, the Washington Post owned Newsweek, and they wanted the fake Steve blog. That was part of the deal. And so I signed to Did go they from, buy it? No, they didn't buy it, but we were going to license it. So I had a, previously it was at Forbes, and Forbes was paying me a, a set fee every month to run ads on the site with a kicker that if, if traffic went up beyond a certain thing, I'd get a little more. But basically, you know, uh, and it was the same deal at Newsweek. And then in the summer, between when I like I made this deal, I said, okay, I'm going to take a month off and I'll start in September, say, um, uh, Steve Jobs got really sick. Came out on stage at an event looking really sick. They didn't say he was, they said, oh, he's fine, blah, blah, blah. But I just had a terrible, terrible feeling. And uh, and I said to the Newsweek guys, like, I can't, I, I want, still want to start the job in September, but I can't, I can't really do that block. I just feel it would be wrong. And, and Steve Jobs, though, he kind of enjoyed the blog, right? It's unclear. I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he hated it. I don't know. He might have hated it. You know, he might have just hated me making fun of him. I mean, I was always trying to do things like, like have fun. Like when you mentioned, like, like putting him in unlikely situations. Like I bought a car. I bought a minivan. We had kids and I, I needed a minivan. So I went and bought a used minivan. And I always get screwed when I buy a car. I'm a terrible negotiator. And, uh, but then I left, and if I was doing the blunt, I was like, wow, I mean, imagine how would Steve Jobs have done that? Like, he would have gone in and just set that place on fire, you know? And so I wrote this whole fake thing about how once in a while, you know, even though I'm a billionaire, I'm super rich, sometimes I just like to, you know, I wasn't always this way. I used to get screwed by car deals. Sometimes I like to just go in and ruin a car salesman's day by like, and he, there's a long, elaborate prank that he did. It was really wish fulfilling. It was like what I would love to do, you know, if I yeah. had. Uh, it's like how Larry David says, like he can be, he gets to say all the things that we all wish we could say. It was like yeah. to me, that's what fake Steve was. It was all how I wish I could be. But um, anyway, so so Newsweek said, fine, stop the blog, <clears throat> and then they thought, well, maybe 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 we'll do a different blog. We'll do Did you do fake, fake Sergey Brin? Yeah, or I thought, yeah, I tried a couple different things, and nothing ever worked. The, the Jobs thing was unique. It was it was the only one that really worked. But um, and then for a while, then when he came back. He had he had a transplant and he came back and it was like he's you know born again, so I revived and I came back too and I was writing about what it's like to be have you know David Pogue's liver and you know blah 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 and um, it, but he was also this kinder gentler Steve now and his PR flack Katie Cotton would always be like well, you know 
whose liver did you get? Because you're being too nice now. And he's like, no, I've, you know, I've seen the, you know. Anyway, so it was, but even then he got sick again. I was like, now I'm really stopping. I'm just doing it. It was very addictive. It was hard for me to stop because I loved, like I loved writing it. Like I just loved it. And did you just start it on a whim? Like was like you were just doing it on your own, right? Yeah, no, no audience, nothing. I just was doing it. I wanted to, you know what it was? Okay, it comes back to what we originally talked about. I'm working at Forbes on the print side. I realize print is pretty much dead. I'm in my 40s. I'm an old guy. What, 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 and, and, and even though I agree with you that print is dead, in fact, you see the, the width of Forbes from the 90s to now, it's like one-third the size. But, but what was making you, was it just that? that was I mean, I, yeah, that was, that was hyperbolic. I, I didn't mean to say it was like dead, dead. But I could see that the future was the internet and internet publishing. Or at least I thought that would be interesting. And I... Um, I thought I got to learn how to blog. I have to learn, you know. So there were, remember, there were three platforms on those. There was WordPress, uh, ThinkPad, and Blogger. And so I thought I'll just start a blog on each of those platforms and try to learn, like literally learn HTML, how to embed photos, like li- just just honestly how to do it, right? And then I tried to learn a little bit of you know when you go to the HTML view and how to embed code and do stuff like that. So I wanted to become, I wanted to develop some facility with with. With that, with the, tech, the technology. And I didn't really care about the content. And so I, I thought, um, I had one, uh, a ThinkPad blog that was like about my, you know, leftover stuff from journalism. I had a, a WordPress blog that was something else. And, and, and on Blogger, I tried a bunch of different things. And I just, no, I stumbled on, oh, what if a CEO had a blog, but he was a real prick? Like he was a real, can we use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, you know, what, what if he was, because, you know, Robert Scoble is always going around saying, Remember Naked Conversations? Uh, Robert I don't. Scoble had a book, Naked Conversations, about he and Shell Israel wrote a book saying every CEO should have a blog. We don't need the press anymore. They're disintermediated. Just have a CEO blog. And and I remember thinking, that's crazy, because most of the CEOs I've met, like if they really were honest, you know, they'd right. be sociopaths. So um, then I thought that could be really funny. Like it was also there's a you know, there's a British humor magazine, Private Eye. And they do a regular feature every edition. There was a thing called the the secret diary of so and so. It'd be like John Major or whatever Prince Charles. They'd make fun of somebody, and by writing their own diary, uh, Elton John, you know. And so I thought, oh, you could do sort of a secret diary like like Private Eye does, but you could pick a CEO. And I tried to run. I had C- I did try Sergey Brin. Didn't work. Like Sergey just, I you know, didn't work. Uh, but somehow. And the Steve Jobs thing was kind of fun, but I didn't do much with it. I did it for a few weeks, four or five weeks, and then I shut it down. And someone revived it, or or, or people started writing like, wait, wait. And I didn't. I wasn't even looking at. I had a couple comments. I wasn't even looking at whether people were reading. So I, I relaunched and I looked at the traffic. And I was like, oh, there's like a thousand people reading this thing. And I, I remember saying to my wife, like, we we had little babies and we we're walking the babies in a stroller. We had twins. And I was saying, you know, this is weird, but like, I think this might. Be something like there's like a thousand people, and you could see where they're from. You know, you, you can look at the stats and see, oh, this guy's somebody from Russia's reading this, and you know, they were all over the place, I and mean, mostly US. But it was just this weird moment from where I thought, wow, this is uh, this could actually be something, isn't that kind of exciting? Like, where you always hear these stories, and I've never personally experienced it, where you start doing something just for your own pleasure, of course, yeah. and then it's like you turn away and you turn back and suddenly it's this huge thing. Like, that's got to be an exciting feeling. 
Well, that must be kind of like what your career is like. I mean, you sort of just struck out and on your own and like off you go. And now you've built this thing, right? I mean, that. Yeah, but I, I like think about it all the time. I don't turn away from it. Oh, 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 yeah. I mean, I sent a link. I, I originally thought I'll make some jokes on this blog. I sent a link to one friend of mine saying, check this out. I'm doing this funny thing. And apparently he passed it around to other people. And that's how it, that's how it started going. But like, yeah, it was very weird. And I think really it took off because Steve Jobs himself had such a uh, was such a powerful figure, had such a cult following. I mean, this was right around the this was right around the time of like let's say the peak of his mythology. It was before the iPhone. It was like yeah, like a year or even more before the iPhone, like oh six, oh five, yeah, something around like that. Five maybe oh six. I mean, but I think the the original jokes were things like like when the Mac was such a joke that he'd be like, oh, I'm so, but he was so deluded, you know. So he's like, man, the Mac is crushing it. We, we just got our new market share in from IDC. We're, we're up to 1.7%. We are killing it, man. Like, watch out. We're going to hit 2% soon, you know? Like, it was really making fun of, like, the deluded Apple fanboy mindset. And then, and then I remember I did one about the phone when there started being rumors there were going to be a phone. And I had him, he went off to the, uh, to the rainforest with Sting. He went to, like, Peru, and they did ayahuasca. <laughs> and they tripped for like, a couple days. Uh. And they were like huddling on the floor of this mud floor he, he and Sting were like huddling together and then and then he said he came back and he had an epiphany and he said I had this huge epiphany about the phone it's going to have one button and he goes and 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 everyone was like what it was a joke right because like they were like no it has to have 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 then the three other sorry so it has to have 12 buttons no all other phones have 12 buttons our phones are going to have one right I, I thought of this while I was tripping on ayahuasca. One button. And ha, ha, ha. It was like a funny like Apple joke about how we're going to. And then, of course, the phone came out. It had a screen with like one button. And everybody was like, dude. And I was like, no, no. I just tried to think of like the stupidest, <laughs> the most pretentious thing you could think of, right? Yeah. But they did it. So, uh, yeah, I kept having these lucky breaks. But it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just basically writing comedy all day long. You know? And was this your first, because obviously you then became a comedy writer for yeah. show Silicon Valley, but was this your first attempt at like humor writing? Because no, I wrote I wrote a few novels that uh, nobody knows about, but I, I published uh, one, two, three, yeah, three novels. And the, well, the first one was a collection of short stories, very serious, very grim and depressing. Then I wrote a very funny comic novel, I think it was right, a funny novel, and then a second funny novel. And how'd they do? No, not not too well, but uh, so they didn't they didn't give you a career. No, were you no, de- no. were you depressed about that? Yeah, in fact, no, no, no. It was only two books. I wrote a collection of short stories, then a novel. The the Steve Jobs thing turned into a third book, which was yeah. a novel. But no, so I, in fact, when I started the fake Steve thing, I was working at Forbes and I was trying to write another novel. And it was a really I wanted to go to write a serious novel. I was going to write a historical novel. It's going to be really serious. I was going to be a real writer, you know, like a Hemingway. I was going to be, you know, I was going to write the, you know, a serious novel. And I'd been working on it for like a year, and it sucked, it was so bad, right? It just sucked, it was historical, about a period they don't know enough about, had no voice, it was terrible. And then I started doing the fake Steve thing as a way to like avoid working on the book. And I remember one point thinking like, I gotta put this blog down because I gotta get back to doing the real, I gotta work on my book. And then at some point I just realized, oh, the blog is the thing, forget about the book, like the book is dead. And this, it, it saved me, in a way the blog saved me from this horrible project that, you know, I maybe still would be trying to work on now. So you were, why were you trying to keep yourself anonymous on the blog for the longest period of time? Um, 
I kind of thought it would add to the allure. Like somehow it occurred to me, nobody knew it was me. Actually, a bunch of people knew, right? My friends knew. But somehow I thought, I remember thinking at the time, like, if everybody knows it's me, nobody's going to find it that interesting because I'm kind of boring and like, you know, it'll ruin it, right? But somehow the idea of the mystery blogger that nobody knows who it is, like, could be funny. You know, it could be like, not funny, but like it would be a cool thing. Like that would help the thing take off because it'd be like this added element of mystery about who's writing it. And I was right. Like that that added to it. People are like, oh, who's writing this blog, you know? And it, uh, and, then, and then once I was outed, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, now it's not so interesting. So you know? did, did you see traffic drop off the second I, I did. And then it came back though. But uh-huh. then uh, over time, I stuck with it. I was going to quit. Then I said, I'll stick with it. And then traffic crept back. And I think it never hit. The biggest month was the month that I got busted by the New York Times. That was like through the roof. Yeah. And it came back down. But it still settled in at like a million uniques a month. Like it was pretty it's good. It's a lot. Yeah. It was pretty good traffic for, and, and it started writing itself. Did you sell ads on it or anything? Forbes used to put ads on it. And then I started making fun of the ads that Forbes was putting on it. And then they got mad at me for that. Like I had to stop doing that because it was like people complaining about the ads saying in the comments, like, I hate these ads. And like, yeah, I were like, I hate them too. And like, but look, you know, somebody's, you know, don't people always complain about ads, but you got to pay the bills. That's why, yeah. So I was like, you know, just don't look at them. Put on an ad blocker. I don't care, you know, but. but. Did you know uh, Mike Smith at Forbes at that time, 2007, 2006? He was the. I didn't know him. He was the CEO of Forbes.com at the time. No, because there was a guy named Jim Spanfeller there. Oh, yeah. Jim was his boss. Oh. Then maybe I met Mike Smith, but I don't. You know, I had a couple of meetings with the ad guys, but I didn't really know them too well. So, 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 again, you did. You, 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 you're kind of like this master of reinvention. Like in, you love writing. You, you got an MFA in creative writing, correct? Yeah, yeah. And then you, you kind of divided your your career initially between um, attempting to be a novelist, being a journalist. Was the was the journalism just an outlet for the writing? Like you really wanted to be a yeah. novelist? Yeah. So journalism way to pay the bills. And so so was it? I mean, was that? I mean, you were a journalist for a really long time. Was that kind of soul sucking? No, because in the. Ultimately, I ended up loving being a journalist, and and uh, by the time I got to Newsweek, I used to, I used to I was one of those people who would really say this, but I really mean it. Like I really felt I had the best job in the world. Like I loved what I did. I didn't was not gonna get rich, you know what I mean? I wasn't you're not gonna get rich as a journalist, but I loved meeting people. I loved talking to them, interviewing them, trying to figure out what's a good story. Like I really, really loved, especially at Newsweek. At Newsweek, because they had a lot of impact. So if you wrote something, if you had a cover in Newsweek, it, in those days, it still meant something. Yeah. And yeah, I got to meet, I go to, went to like Lawrence Livermore Labs and met these fascinating scientists and you could write, it was, no, it's like unbelievably fun. It was great. I really loved being a journalist. You know? so, so then, so then, um, you know, you're, you're uh, the fake Steve Jobs guy. You got this great, position at Newsweek. I think you, you had just started their their tech blog, uh, or you were about to. We were or about right? to, yeah. Yeah, which is similar to how, you know, ultimately, you know, if you think about it, like Recode spun out of the Wall Street Journal, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, and then you get the call, you're 52, we're laying people off. No, you can't even get six weeks severance, only two weeks severance. And I know you worked it out a little bit, but it no, was- No, and I was like, can I stay on cut my salary in half and just keep my job. Like I'll find a way to live on half the money or at least I'll start that way. I'll, I'll give me six months and I'll look for another job. 
Like, no, nothing. Bye. Get out of here. Like, it was, it was well, pretty Did you harsh. ever find out, like, why it was so harsh? No. Like, you never kind of got back in touch with um, the, the woman who was the editor and the said, editor, hey, no, what no. happened? No. And, uh, um, and then she didn't end up lasting there either. So she ended up getting... I wish we could call her right now and find out what happened. <laughs> yeah, she, she might not be happy about that. But... Uh, <clears throat> um, like, so, so you get off the phone and... I mean, when I was reading this in your book, Disrupted, uh, uh, this is kind of in the beginning of the story, I was like really stressed out, like, because I'm putting myself in your shoes. Like, and I was even thinking, I, was, I, said, I said to somebody, 52 has to be the worst time because you're still quite a ways from what people consider retirement age. You know, right. you had six year old twins, so you're thinking about college and expenses and other things for them. And like you said, it's going to be you, your career was in this kind of old media, which didn't really exist anymore or was disappearing, um, I would be, I think I would, I think I would just, it would just be damaging to myself. I, I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, it, it was. It was, yeah. That was. Your wife had just quit her job, right? Yeah. She was a high school teacher. and Very uh, lucrative job that she gave up for, for you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her, yeah. <laughs> They're high paying. She's teaching at a private high school in Boston and she had very bad uh, migraines to the point where she'd be in the hospital a lot. And, Ugh. and just managing life was just a bit much for her and the kids were having a hard time. And so uh, we, saw, we had this conversation. Well, over time we had it many times. We finally said, you know what? Um, because I had been ready to get laid off at Newsweek for a long time. And then when they started talking about doing a tech blog, for the first time I thought, oh, oh, this is going to be okay. So I said, look, I think things are solid here, you know, for now. So why don't you, and even if they're not, like you can't just keep doing a job that's destroying your health. You just can't, that's what's, you know, there's other, yeah, more to life, right? So, um, oh, by the way, we, 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 we pass off that comment as uh, an obvious thing, but... Uh, I think many people go into jobs where they have this gut instinct that they're not happy with it. And sometimes, okay, maybe I'm not happy today or maybe you know the boss is in a bad mood today, but in general, I love this job or I like what I'm doing or I'm learning my, um, I feel growth in my life and I'm happy yeah. with the certainty and there's always new things that I'm exploring. Like when you're a journalist, there's new people you could talk to. You might be improving your skills or salary. There might be, uh, an idea that you're contributing to society. So, so, but if you get that real gut feeling that something is not working out, you kind of have to do something about it. And that's, it sounds like that's what your wife did with her, her job. Yeah. And she loved, she loved her job. She loved teaching, but it was just, um, her health was very, very bad. And, um, so, yeah. So she, we talked about it and we, we said, let's, let's, you know, we'll cut back a little bit. We'll make adjustments. And, uh, uh, and then, and then literally it was the June, I think she had just finished her last week of school and they knew she wasn't coming back. She had told them she wouldn't renew in the fall. And then, yeah, I got this call. And, and at the time Newsweek was talking about, they had Andrew Sullivan's blog, remember for a yeah. while? And they were going to do a tech blog like Andrew Sullivan's blog, like so that they were going to build out these blogs, and I would be the tech Andrew Sullivan, which I thought, oh, this is this is really good. I like this. This will be, you know, 
sort of like fake Steve, only in my voice, but I've been looking for a new thing to really latch onto. That'll be great. And I liked blogging. Right. So you, so you were a known talent, meaning they couldn't just replace you with like four college kids. Like you already proved that you could build a successful blog from scratch and you had, you know, kind of the, the humor skill as well as the journalism skill. So I still don't understand why they laid you off other than some kind of like weird economic thing or maybe this woman had it in for you. I don't know. Well, I know a lot of people were getting, getting at the same time and, and a lot of people who, uh, uh, who had been there for a while um, and, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't, it was, it was just a tough time. I mean, they were losing a lot of money. I think they didn't know quite what to do. I think they wanted, it was a, Culturally, you know, you had these. Didn't two Jeff cultures. Bezos own it at that point, or not? Or no, Don Graham still owned it. No, well, that was the Post, but the Post had so the Post sold Newsweek to Sidney Harmon, the Harmon uh, Carden guy. Okay, and then we were independent for a little bit, and then Harmon turned around and wanted to get Tina Brown as, as the editor, but Tina would only go if they merged with the Daily Beast. So suddenly, we went from being independently owned by the Post to owned by Sidney Harmon to now being owned by Barry Diller, and merged with the Daily Beast. <clears throat> um, and that even seemed like, well, okay, but really what it was was a takeover. So all of Tina's people took over all. Everybody from Newsweek was gone. It was just a bloodbath. And then you had these kids from the Daily Beast who had never worked in print trying to put out a print magazine. And they, you know, for better or for worse, um, publishing a print magazine is a a skill, you know, it, it takes... It's a beast. And yeah, well, I mean, it takes this institutional knowledge of how do you get that that book out on time every weekend. And so we, suddenly we're running late and we had these overruns and then Tina would hire in all these big name friends of hers from the New Yorker and they were taking over departments but they didn't know what was going on and the newsweek people were all leaving and then you had these... Uh, I had like, you know, for a while I had no editor, then I had these editors who like didn't know anything about business, but like they were being put in the business. I had literally one person call me and say, I'm editing your story this week. Can you come down here and talk to me, sit, just sit at my desk rather than, yeah, sure, I'll come down, sit, sit with. Okay, so I just want to know, like venture capital. What exactly is venture capital? Like I, I have a friend or my brother or something works in venture capital, but I don't, do we need to explain what venture capital is? Like, no, it's a business story, but you know, it's a good question. Venture capital is this, and you know, like it was some story saying they've raised this is a company that's raised fifty million in venture venture funding. Do we need to explain? It? I don't really quite know what venture funding is. Like you're the business editor, you know. So it was like, it was chaos, right? So you kind of knew, like, oh, this is all going sideways. One of these days, I'm I'm going to get out. I'm going to get killed. And I thought, well, I'll just hang in and wait to get laid off. And when I get laid off, then I'll find another. That was that was a dumb move. That I was think, a mistake. I think there's a there's a couple of things. I mean, look, I want to get to your your main story of HubSpot, and then I'd love to talk about uh, Silicon Valley, and and of course your your book, Disrupted Covers. Both of those, but it seems to me you made a mistake when you didn't take the package. Okay, well, it wasn't offered a package. Oh, you weren't offered a package. No, they said you don't. No, you're not. You you can't have a package. We want you to stay. It was like off. It was on their dime. You couldn't just sign up for a package. Uh, okay, you couldn't have begged for it. I mean, I could have begged for it. I should have just done that. Because there's a there's a saying I always live by, which is take the cash when really? it's offered. Yeah, but it doesn't matter how much upside opportunity you have. If there's cash right now, take it. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, that's good advice. Because I, I, then you could, you know, what you could have done. Then you could have waited a month, and you could have gone back to Newsweek and said, "Hey, can I have a job?" Yeah, exactly. Or, or, or um, the other problem is they were the packages were all based on years of tenure. 
So some people who have been there for a long, long time did pretty well. I had only been there two years at that point, say two, yeah. Because I okay. was four so but I wouldn't have got that much money. But my, I'm gonna pack, tell you, my package wouldn't have been much. I'm going to tell you another mistake. Not a mistake, but this is yeah, just yeah, my yeah. suggestion. So don't, yeah. take it, don't take this wrong way. It's just, no, I, it's I, just how I think. And I see when you describe the Tina Brown, how she got involved, it wasn't just that she kind of had, took editorial control over Newsweek. She made a business deal. Tina Brown is an editor, but also a businesswoman, very yeah. much a deal maker. And I feel like you should have done more of a deal with your blog, Fake Steve Jobs, whether you were going to shut it down or not, like you could have said, you could have pitched a dream. I'm going to start a network of fake this, and right. you know we're going to bring on comedy writers. It's going to be huge. We're going to it's going to be like Crack.com, which also is owned by you know Barry Diller, uh, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be great. Uh, I feel like you should have done more of a deal there. No, that's that's seriously really good advice. And anytime somebody wants something from you, you should go into deal mode. Oh, yeah, that's. I, I wish I had met you like seriously a long time ago. Well, you have very good deal guys in your camp, like Ari Emanuel and so on. But this is just how I think. Yeah, not anymore. Well, but but uh, but yeah. But the, the one thing I always had with the fake Steve thing is I had this big audience, but I could never figure out how do I make that into a company. Like I would sell ads, but they're pathetic. You know, you don't make much money on that. And I I, I never could figure out like like now looking back, I realized what I could have done is transition that from being. Because they had the audience. Like, so what do you do with that audience? I think what I should have done is become just an Apple blog. And then, yeah, there's other Apple blogs, but fine. Step from behind the curtain, be me, and just be this big pro Apple, like what, what John Gruber is with Daring Fireball. Just do one of those. And uh, unfortunately, I was always somewhat sarcastic and cynical about Apple. I was like making fun of the Apple world. You can't do that. You have to be 100% pro Apple you know, bootlicker kind of Apple guy, but that would have been a way to make that into a business, maybe. Or even uh, you have that as another silo of kind of a set of Apple blogs. One is about the Apple stock, another is about the Apple products with affiliate fees to the Apple products. So there's there are ways to think about it where you could have done a deal instead of just handing over the ad inventory. So, right. And or, or there was a really smart editor at Forbes who said you should turn this into an investor newsletter. Like you've got an audience now. Start. But I was like, I don't know anything about. I'm, I'm not qualified to be anybody's investment advisor. I think his point was like nobody is. But, yeah, yeah. But and that might have been a way. But I, 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 yeah, I'm terrible at thinking about business, about how to monetize, like how to make a business out of something. I'm seriously bad at it. Okay, so then you you started applying for jobs. We, uh, you know, you got you, you were temporarily at one blog, read right, which wasn't a bad blog, but by the way, no, I thought that was good. a decent yeah. blog. I don't, I don't even know if it's still around, but I, I used to read it. Kind of tiny, but I think it does still exist. Yeah. And, and then you ended up at what was perhaps in the Boston area the the hottest tech company, HubSpot, yeah. which still exists. Now it's a public company, and you figured, and you and you were. The old man there, <laughs> like at the yeah, ripe yeah, old yeah. age of fifty-four or whatever it was. How old were you? Fifty-two. Fifty-two. Yeah. And and you you were double the age of the average employee, and it was really like a culture shock. Like you get there, your boss wasn't there, your boss's boss wasn't there. Nobody knew you were supposed to arrive. Then some twenty-seven-year-old kid uh, shows you around, and he turns out he's your boss. Yeah. <laughs> like, were you depressed? Oh, uh, well, more. More anxious and depressed, like kind of panicky, like, oh crap, what have I done? Like, maybe I've made a huge mistake, right? That was, I didn't get depressed until later when it started to really like weigh on me. But at first, did, I was just freaking out. Did you cry that first day? No. I think I would have cried. You would have cried? Yeah. Yeah. 
I remember when I first left my first kind of corporate job for an entrepreneurial thing, and then that day I lost the our biggest customer. Uh, I did cry. I'm like, did I just make a big mistake? And I, like, tears came to my eyes. Yeah, so. I cry a lot. I cry at movies very easily. I tend to be kind of emotional. But no, I, I, I was still kind of thinking, like, because I went into it thinking this. Okay, I thought about going into a corporate job for a long time as a tech reporter covering these companies. I remember thinking very early on, I had a friend who went to Microsoft in like 1988. <laughs> yeah, and so ever since then, I thought like, man, I should cross over. Anyway, I knew no matter where I go, there's going to be a, an adjustment. It's going to be different than media. Maybe not going to be as freewheeling or as crazy or as kooky. Or, or Little did I know. But I mean, um, I, I had this idea it was going to be uptight and stiff and you know, you're, you have to bite your tongue. I did realize I'm going to have to bite my tongue and not be as blunt as you can be as a journalist. So I had sort of resolved, like, this is going to be a tough thing. So... Expect, like, just take a year. Like, listen, sit back, watch, chill out, try to find a place for yourself. Your first job might not be the first position, may not be the right, but like, hang out, try to negotiate your own and create your own role. Like, these places are kind of fluid and malleable. Just, just relax, don't panic. But of course, but I was panicking, you know? Did you have other, like, you were interviewing around, did you have other potential offers yes. at the time? I had a really good, solid offer in California. And, um, I've often regretted not taking that, although who you, knows if it would have worked out. You, you, you mentioned it, but you didn't mention the company. Man, my, I like to say, because it's like, My guess was it was Google, but I don't know. Yeah, I can't say. Okay. But imagine if it had been Google, and look at the stock price in 2000, what year would that have been? 2012, and look at it now. Yeah, it's probably a double. But still, you had HubSpot options as unpleasant yeah. as it was. No, and, and I thought, well, there are... And by, by the way, you don't even hold back. In the very beginning of the book, in the, in the intro, you say you joined a company run by charlatans, and you basically implied this was like the scammiest... Co- you don't hold back I didn't know that book. going in. I didn't know that they were... I, later, I came yeah, to no, Of course, later. Like, but you, you don't hold back in the book. Yeah, no, no, I don't. But, but, but going in, I met, here's the thing. So... Say, instead of going to a, like, one of my friends from Forbes now works at GE, and he runs a GE Reports. Very nice, cool thing, and he's a journalist, he's a great journalist. Another guy does the same thing at IBM. Like, yeah, you can go into a big company, and you do your little job, and blah, blah, blah. but I thought, oh, a startup, like, I, I interviewed with the two founders, right? And they really liked me, and I like them. Like, these guys are really smart, I like these guys. And I'm gonna be working with these guys. Like, here in this place, I'm gonna be a big shot. I'll be able to like hang out with the founders and talk with them. I don't know what my role will be, but I'll I'll figure I'll find a way to add value here. I'll do something that'll help these guys, you know? I'll you know. Whereas at a big company, I thought you'll just get swallowed up and it'll just be drudgery and right. you know, editing blogs or when you were interviewing with them, was there any sense that you should uh outline the specific role or another mistake? <laughs> well, it did. It felt fairly specific at the time, um, going in, but I didn't scope it well enough, and I didn't scope who exactly am I going to work for. Now, mind you, all this. I, I would love to get your advice on this, and I have my own thoughts about like because I've given other people advice based on this. I have also heard though of several other people who took this same job at HubSpot. Like I wasn't the first person this happened to, where they. 
said, yeah, yeah, we want to do this high-end content. We want a real journalist, blah, blah, blah. And then they got in there and it was like, oh, no, but we sit over there in the corner and you're, you're working for her. So, yeah, but I one lesson I learned from this is I think you really have to have a well-scoped, like, you know, when you have, I've had a lot of interviews, they're like, well, we don't quite know what the, the job is going to be, whatever you make it. I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't want that job. Like, right. that's stupid. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I always hear almost the least important thing to negotiate is salary. Yeah. Everything else, you, you need to have a bigger list than them. So then you can give them the nickels and take the dimes when you're negotiating. And part of that is uh, title, uh, responsibilities, org chart, where you fit, even vacation time. You know, all these all these things that need to be right. discussed. And also going in there with a solid plan of what they need and having them sign off on that. Because then, then you know it's a hole that you're going to fill. Right, yeah. Well, th- th- yeah, I agree. And I should have done a better job of that. And they were kind of funky in that they have no org chart and they refuse to make an org chart. And they won't ever say... People were clamoring for an org chart. They're like, no, no, we're an experimental company. We don't have an org chart. So you can't know where you where you work but um, or who you work for. Um, but the other issue I had was that the two founders had hired me. And and even after I had been there for, I don't know, five or six months, when was it? I started in April in about in August. So, yeah, four months, right? Um, I realized things aren't working out. And so I went... I, set a meeting with the two founders again. I said, look, basically, you know, you hired me not to do this, you know, and then you handed me up to the CMO. He handed me to this other guy who handed me this other guy. And now I'm in this box with a bunch of, you know, people writing, you know, uh, lead gen content. Like that's, you you shouldn't be paying me what you're paying me to do lead gen. You can get, you know, like that's, there's no point in that. I'm not helping you doing this. And I'm not even very good at lead gen. So, um, but here's what I think you need. I think you need this, high-end publication separate from the blog, you know, and it should be this and it should look like this. And I've already talked to the guy who runs the art department. He really wants to do this too. We'll do big high-impact art. We'll do video and we can call it this. And, you know, I had a big proposal. Now, unfortunately, I'd already pitched that proposal to a guy who was like above me and he'd already said no. So then I went, okay, I'm going to just go to the, to the boss. And the two bosses said, we love, this is, yeah, this is exactly what we need. And in fact, one founder got up and said, I have these other ideas, these components I want to add to it, and blah, blah, blah. It's like on the whiteboard. I'm like, unbelievable. I went home and told my wife, like, it totally worked. Like, I went in, I pitched, and they loved it. Um, but it turns out the CMO, I think, was pissed that I went over his head Set it through channels, and he didn't want anything to do with any of this. So the, the problem I had was that the CEO, the, the the two co-founders who hired me, did want me to do X, Y, and Z. It was just all these layers of people beneath them who didn't, and they were the two co-founders had kind of checked out. So it was like didn't really matter what they said. That's another thing I didn't know going in. I guess I should have done more due diligence of like what are the politics of this place? Who are these people? I think it's hard what? to know though because like right. you kind of implied. I mean, in your book. This was happening all across Silicon Valley as well. Like, just all these companies were starting up, trying to blast through sales while while losing money every year, and yeah. then going public to take advantage of the fact that there was an open IPO window at the time. So everyone was getting rich. Like people were making, you know, you know, like take a company like Instagram. Instagram existed for five hundred days and then was sold for you know multiple billions of dollars. Was like five hundred days before yeah. it was sold. 
Yeah. So wow. that's that's what that's what was happening is people were starting not because they had a dream, even though you know you you mentioned in the book so much there was so much kind of what you called hub speak. You know, you're at HubSpot. They called it. You, you called it HubSpeak. All this like inspirational mumbo jumbo, jumbo to excite customers, excite investors, and so on. I think that was happening across the board. Everyone thought they were changing the world when they were just, you know, building an app to keep track of the times they went to the bathroom or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I I, I was just talking to someone earlier today, or today or anyway, about this idea that no matter how well you scope out a job. You really don't know how it's going to go until you, you just got to get there. Yeah. Right? You can try to figure and, and I was saying to someone, it, it reminded me of like marriage. Like uh, I had a friend who was dating this woman for a long, long time. She wanted to get married. He couldn't quite commit. He didn't know. He loved her, but he didn't know. And blah, blah, blah. And what didn't he know, he think? I don't, I don't know. If he said he loved her, what, what do you think he didn't know? I'm always curious about this. I know, because it had been years. Like at this point, I think it was more his Fears were about himself. Like, am I going to be able to handle this, right? But my, my point is, you know, you get married, you love the person, even, no matter, even if it's all good, you really don't know. You, you make this commitment for, the, oh, we're going to be married for the rest of our lives. How do you make that commitment? You don't know what the rest of your life is, but you have to just do it and then find out, right? Or, or you'll just never do it. Right? So the same with a job. I feel like you, you're going to take this job and see how it goes. And, you know, you know um, I knew within, you know, well, once that happened with that, where I pitched him the other idea and then the other guy said, you know, stalled it, I knew then, like, okay, this isn't going to work out. I should just leave. And I just started thinking, I'll I'll just, I'll start. I'll find a way to phase out and do it politely and nicely so I won't, um, uh, won't, won't, won't ruffle any feathers. I'll just sort of like slide away and find another job. You know, yeah, because that—that's not the worst thing. Sometimes you take a job and you find out, yeah, well, it's not the right job. So you just, you know. So what? So what kept you there? Well, I was planning to stay till April, which would be my one year. And in March, I got at, called out of the blue and asked if I want to go be a writer on Silicon Valley. And and said, and, and, and uh, just to connect the dots there, like it's funny how you you kind of mentioned uh, Larry David earlier. So you had made. Kind of an attempt at a, I guess, a cable show version of the fake Steve Jobs blog, yeah. and Alec Berg, who uh, saw it or was involved with it in some way. I don't know. Um, uh, I sold a show to the Epics Network in two thousand nine or so, ten, called Icon, based on the fake Steve Jobs blog, and my collaborator was a guy named Larry Charles. Oh yeah, works, Larry Charles is who works with Larry David. Yeah, he was a director on Seinfeld and Bruno Borat. Yeah, and, and of course uh, all the Curbs. You right. Know. So and he's brilliant, and I really loved him. It was a great experience working with him. And then the show didn't get made, but still. And then a couple of years later, Silicon Valley pops up at HBO, and they put Alec Berg, who also is from Curb and Seinfeld in as the showrunner, and he knew Larry Charles, and I had had some meetings with Alec around my fake Steve show. So um, that's how it was a fluke. So the funny thing was, I was devastated. Talk about, like, I probably did cry when, when the finally, when the epic show, finally, when they finally, they stretched us forever and ever and had us writing other things, and then finally they just said, we're not going to make any shows. Um, I remember thinking. Why, why do you think they didn't make it? 
Well, well, Steve Jobs' health, I guess, was probably a factor. Yeah, but they did, then they decided not to make any scripted show. Epics has never made any scripted shows. They've made they they decided to do comedy specials. Yeah, and to run other people's content. They were for a time thinking they were going to become an original, carry original content, and they had. <clears throat> so, but yeah, Steve being sick was probably part of it. Um, I, I I never really got a good reason, but um, I think it was maybe internally they had hired this development woman from CBS to go buy them a slate of programming. And she did, and she was developing all these shows, and I was mine was one of them. And then maybe they just didn't like any of the shows, or maybe they decided scripted was going to be too expensive. Yeah, I, I, I never really, because she more or less said, so I really dealt with her, so I don't know what was happening above her. And then she ended up leaving. Mm, um, that'll kill it. Well, I mean, she left after my project. Mm. After they didn't make any shows, it was like, well, why, why, why is she there? She's there to develop shows, and they're not making shows, so she just left. But it makes sense then that like Larry Charles and Alec Berg would reach out to you uh, yeah. because you knew you had already been writing kind of a humorous version of Silicon Valley with the fake Steve Jobs, and that's what Silicon Valley the show is. Right, but without the scripts. Silicon Valley knowledge necessarily, like you yeah. had thirty years of knowledge. Yeah, so they, they, they yeah, that was right, and and the, most of the writers there are just straight comedy guys. They they have a tech consultant. They bring in different people, but yeah, and I think yeah. So it was kind of a, uh, and for me, it was like, oh, I went from like the worst point of my life, like oh my god, because I was ready to move to, when the icon thing was happening. I thought like I'm gonna go to LA. I'm gonna be rich and famous. I'm gonna have a big house in Malibu. I was ready to do the whole thing, right? Like I was, I thought, oh, never occurred to me that like oh no, a lot of pilots don't get made or whatever, <laughs> you know. Right. So yeah, I was. So I went from being like thinking I was about to become Mr. Hollywood to just being devastated. And then from that, though, two or three years later, just completely out of the blue, uh, yeah, I got that call. And then I was like, oh, this is great. Then I went through the whole thing and like, I'm back. It, it just I'm, goes to show you, though, that like networks, some, you know, they always say it's not your first tier connections, but your second tier connections that provide you the most opportunities. So you oh. created these second tier connections. You know, they weren't your close cohort, but they were... People you had indirectly dealt with, or you know, directly for a short while, but they are the ones who come back to create opportunity for you. So, when you second tier means what? Like first tier would be like I knew Larry Charles because I worked with Larry Charles. So that's first tier. Yeah, um, the first tier might be just the actual people who are like, let's say, you know, the ones you like. You could call your friend a G who once worked at you know Forbes or whatever. Yeah. Like that's like first tier. Like you could pick up on the phone, call him, he takes the call. Second tier is just like one remove, like either one of his friends. Or oh, yeah. someone you knew distantly, but you're no longer in touch with. Yeah, you know, and uh, but those are the ones who you know, if they're looking for someone, they expand out their their brain. Like who who can I find? And they, they make some yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's right. That's I didn't know that the second tier are typically T- typically where people find jobs. Really? Yeah. Oh, there's like some research on this. I'll I'll, I'll track it down and send it to you. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So yeah, so that's what that's how that happened, and uh, but it was only like for. Three or four months. It was like a writing season. T- tell but, me what that's like. So, so you you get the call. Uh, did you have to pitch? It's like, so the season one had already happened, and it was a it was a very good season one. So yeah. Obviously, you got renewed for season two. You're working on season two. Um, a, where did the co-producer title come from? Oh well, that was my second year. So my first year I was I had a title of staff writer. Co-producer is not a, a good title. It's not no. a big title. No, it sounds like. The shit, right? But actually, the way it works in the TV business is there's about ten or twelve titles, and you just—it's a union shop, 
and you basically just keep working your way up in titles. Co-producer is the almost at the bottom. It's like a, two steps above staff writer. Like the staff writer, then maybe story editor, and then co-producer. Like it, and then from co-producer, there's uh, producer, senior producer, blah blah blah. Then there's co the executive co-executive producer. Like there's a whole list of producers above that. So co-producer, so it's one of those things like... It looks impressive though. Oh yeah, outside the TV business looks cool. In the TV business, it's like where you'd be when you were like 27 years old in your fourth year out of college working there. Like you find, what it basically means too is anything below that as a staff writer, I forget where the cutoff is, but it's definitely for staff writer, maybe story editor, you get paid a weekly salary for every week you work. You just get paid and not very much. Co-producer, you get a quote and you get paid by the number of episodes. So if it's a 10 episode show, you get 10x whatever your quote is, you know? And then you get like when it when someone buys it on iTunes, do you get another check? Well, uh, you get if you have a I think that's if you have a story writing credit, you get residuals on ones where you have a, where you got a writing credit. So first the first season I worked on there, I got a writing credit. So I would get these little residual checks once in a while when it aired someplace else. My second season with them, which was season three of the show, I had a co-producer title, but I never got a show credit because there were already there were more than ten writers. Hmm. So they gave out ten things, and I was like an extra. So I had a better title, but I didn't get a show credit. So I don't think I ever get any residuals from that year. So, so you um, and you describe this in the book. You're at HubSpot. All these problems were happening, and. I mean, I encourage people to read Disrupted because just every aspect of what you dealt with was dysfunctional. And and you kind of show how that wasn't just isolated to this company. But I mean, I, I want to talk about Silicon Valley in a second, but uh, the, the show, but Silicon Valley, the real place, also you describe as so dysfunctional. Like it's sort of like people get their lucky hit and then they're kind of blessed as gods in Silicon Valley, in part because of the lucky hit and in part because of. You know, self worth becomes equated with net worth. So you have all these like huge venture capitalists that are famous that make never make a good decision again. Yeah, I like to think that the, the the difference between a venture capitalist and one of those people who wins the the lottery, wins the mega bucks, whatever, is just that the mega bucks guy then for the rest of his life doesn't go around thinking he's a genius at everything. You know right. what I mean? He knows. I just I just won the lottery. It's fine. But the guys in Silicon Valley now seem to think like, no, I, I can invest in biotech. I think so. I, you know, like, and then you have Theranos, right? Like, yeah, sure, we, you know, yeah, we know everything. You know, I think yeah, there's a. Big or like John Doerr went to clean tech. He, he did such a good job on like Amazon and all yeah. all those companies and Netscape and everything. But then he went into clean tech that did, did nothing. Yeah, well, and and uh, and yeah, I don't know. so I think there is a tendency to yeah to people to believe that these guys know more than they do. Some, oh, yeah, look. Some of the, some of those venture a lot of them are very very bright people. You know, I don't think they can predict the future. I think that's you know maybe that's the nature of the beast too. You make a lot of dumb bets, right? That's how that business works. You bet and on- and yet though, you look at like the best companies. Like forget about HubSpot for a second. Like there are legit good companies run by very smart people. Google being a great example. Yeah, I mean those guys are geniuses, and Google is like a great, yeah, magnificent company. Or Facebook. Facebook, Amazon, yeah, you know, Apple, and I'm gonna throw Disney in there just because right. it's run by extremely smart people. Yeah. So what wasn't as it seems like there's two types of companies that make it to the billion dollar level. There's 
the ones that are really smart and providing some sort of value to the world, and then the ones like HubSpot, or I'll just use HubSpot as an example because that's in your book, uh, where they emulate as much as possible. You know, they they kind of check the box on as many things as possible to make them seem like one of the good companies, and then they go public. Yeah, and because they're able to tell that story, we checked all these boxes. They're still growing, and their stock has gone way up since I left. I mean, you know, yeah, it's a two and a half billion dollar market cap is right it now. Two and a half billion now. Yeah. You see, I sold my stock. My I didn't have that much, but like the day it unlocked, I was like, I'm getting out of this. I have I have no investment savvy at all. Like like no, but you maybe you did it correctly because you knew you were afraid given what you had seen you inside the company since then. I should have just sat on it. I should have just kept it, right? I had. It's hard. It's hard to know that. I know. You can't I'm, predict. I and. and I, <laughs> but but again, though, here's here's where it gets back oh to God. like you're at HubSpot. Everything was dysfunctional, but you're still. And you say like a fluke, but it was still out of like your ability to constantly reinvent. Like when you were a journalist, you you said okay. I'm in print. I'm going to learn this new economy stuff. I'm going to learn how to blog. And then you did, you you combine that with your humor writing and your journalistic knowledge. You made fake Steve Jobs. So that kind of was this long route that wasn't a fluke that took you to Silicon Valley, the show. Yeah. And so yeah, you yeah. had this ability to reinvent yourself. That was you planted all the seeds years in advance, and so opportunities happened. And so, 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 so HubSpot gave you an opportunity to take 14 weeks off. That's actually a pretty good thing that they did. And yeah. you could work on the show. Yeah. So you get to the show. And it was their idea. Because I said, I'm going to leave. Because I thought, this is it. This is how I'll save face. This lets me leave the job that isn't very good and just be like, oh, I'm going off to work in Hollywood. And then, you know, after that, I don't know. But like, you know. And they, my boss there, came up with the idea of like, look, I got a better idea. Why don't we give you a leave of absence? You can continue to vest, keep your health insurance, and come back after the season. And I was like, I mean, you're super generous, right? Like, and and I think that there's um, my gut is there's like a selfish aspect to that in that, then as they're getting closer to IPO, you're in their back pocket. Oh, we also have this guy who worked on the show Silicon Valley. It's just kind of like a a sentence in the news article, but it it. it Provides it could potentially provide some weird legitimacy, you know, additional legitimacy to all their other efforts, or a little buzz. They they were yeah, very, they, buzz. they like buzz, and they wanted to be able to say like, well, that show Silicon Valley is kind of based on us. You know that we're the model for that show. Like, well, no, you're not. But but then they because these conversations were all happening before the first season even aired, I think, or maybe the one episode had aired, right? Because no, it was April, right? So yeah. Um, or right because you were contacted before they were even renewed for the second season. Yeah, before they were even airing the show, they had, they had aired one episode, I think, and then they sent me rough cuts of the rest of the season that hadn't even been finished editing yet. So they, um, but and I said yes, I'll definitely go if they get renewed. And then they did get renewed. So there was a period where I was sitting there going, I don't know if they're going to get renewed, so I'm not going to say anything yet. And then they did get renewed, and they said, okay, we definitely want you to come. So then I went and talked to them. The the other aspect of it, I think, there was buzz. They, they early on had a conversation with PR, brought me in with my boss and said, like, all right, so can we get a cameo for Brian Halligan, the CEO, on the show? Can we get them to place HubSpot logos or products? They didn't make product, you know, like swag in the set. Can we get this? I was like, no, you can't have any of that. Like, like can we get a mention of HubSpot in a script? Like they wanted and like stuff that I couldn't promise anyway, even if I wanted to, right? 
But they went, that was, I think, their interest. And then they found out, no. And then I think, I think they realized, like, oh, this isn't doing us any good from a PR thing. So when I came back, they didn't really want me to come back. I think my boss wrote to me right toward the end of the time I was in L.A. And sort of said, yeah, do you really, why do you really want to come back? Maybe you don't want to come back. Just as a friend, I'm saying maybe you don't want to come back. Right, and you had said that was his technique he'd used to basically push out another employee. Yeah, and I think that was his, his way of telling me, like, don't come back. And maybe, again, in, right then I should have just said, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not coming back. Uh, thanks, it was great, and I really appreciate it, and, um, but I'm going to go do something else. Could you have, you, do you think when he sent that mail, knowing his ulterior motive based on his prior, or your prior experience with him, could you have then negotiated, hey, uh, I'm fine, you know, give me a couple weeks severance, speed up my vesting for the first year, and then I'm done? Yeah. Maybe that's what I should have done. I did call him as soon as I got the email. I said, dude, what's going on? Like, is this, are you telling me, like, is this like your nice way of saying, don't come back? Like, and if it is, cool, just let me know. He's like, no, 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 I just don't know why you. And I was like, why are we doing this dance? Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, right then I might have said, uh, I, I don't think they would accelerate your vesting, but I would have, I had vested a year and a half. I didn't really care, but because um, I knew it wasn't going to, I knew I was going to come back. And it would then, be miserable. Well, just look for another job mm-hmm. anyway. You know what I mean? Or hope that I would get hired back to Silicon Valley for the next season. Um, oh, and then yeah, and then when I when I came back uh, to Boston, I got a call from my agent in LA, and they said, "Oh yeah, you did great. They love you. They definitely want to hire you for next season. So you're all set. You're on the show." So I was like, "Oh okay, I'll just well, I'll just quit now." You know what I mean? Well, I'll hang in. I'll find some other job to do for the next six months, and then. In April or May, or whatever, I'll go back out to LA, and this time I'll probably just move there and stay there. You know. Um, so, so, so I want to I want to ask you about Silicon Valley a little bit. So, you, so you're in the writers room. Um, like there were ten writers and ten episodes. So, like you said, the the, the showrunner kind of gave a writing credit to to each writer. Yeah. Um, but you're all involved. I'm assuming in pitching ideas for each show. How does it work in a writers room? Because like, let's say take a novel. One person writes that. It's not like a writers room writes a novel. Right. Why on sitcoms, there's like 10 people writing a, a 30-page script. Or more, right? Some rooms get even bigger. But uh, yeah, and I um, I think partly because this model has grown up over decades, right? Especially it comes out of the network world where you had 22, 24 episodes to do, and they were every week, and you were really writing by the seat of your pants. And so you'd break off and like, you might do episode one, you do two, you do three. And I mean, there's a showrunner, but like basically it was much more live, right? Much more, so you needed an army of people. And over time, you know, budgets went up, the money got bigger, so they just could hire bigger and bigger rooms. And they sort of carried that over to the cable world where um, not all cable shows have this model. Like like Curb Your Enthusiasm doesn't have a big room. They have like three guys who work with Larry David. In fact, well, well, for, but, but Larry David, but Curb Your Enthusiasm is a, like a very unique model right. in that he writes an outline for, of three or four pages and then all, all of the actors are essentially improv comedians and they improv the scenes right. until they get him upset. <laughs> like it, it, from what I read, they, they keep on like playing the scene over and over until they figure out how to get him arguing and then that's the scene. Yo, yeah. <laughs> And Silicon Valley doesn't seem to be run so differently in the sense that um, you look at the main cast, like Ehrlich Bachman's the comedian, T.J. Miller, very successful comedian. They're all they're all successful comedians. Even like 
you know, Martin Starr, who plays uh, Guilfoyle, is not a stand-up comedian, but he was in Judd Apatow's Freaks and Geeks, is where he got his start. Like yeah. all these guys, like grew up in comedy and improv. Yeah. So Thomas and TJ are both improv background. I think Zach, who plays Jared, is also a big improv guy. Yeah. So. Uh, there's two different questions, but why the model exists, I don't know. I think it just has crept up, and that's why they have this big room. True Detective, for example, only had one or two people. Like they're mm-hmm. going to do a season now of True Detective with Nick Pizzolatto and uh, Milch. What's his name? David Milch? Yeah, and, David Milch. So they're going to two. Yeah, two guys. Which is, pro- I think, the efficient way to run a show. They have like a real voice, and it's just that. Um, but the way it does work, anyway, which I didn't know until I went out there, is you sit in a room. You have basically the world's longest business meeting. You sit in a room for 14 weeks before shooting even begins, at least on Silicon Valley, with whiteboards all over every wall and a big conference table. And Alec Berg sits there and Mike Judd sits there. And the rest of us kind of sit around the, the table. And there's, on that show, there's four main guys, Mike and Alec. And then each of them has sort of a lieutenant. And it's really their show. It's really those four guys. The rest of us are there. They're like, we, and you basically have a conversation. You just chip in talking, 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 talking. And you don't write anything. There's people at the side of the room who are writing down everything that gets said, who keep a log of every day's, a transcript of literally every day's, con, uh, of, of every day's conversation. And then occasionally Alec gets up and goes to the whiteboard and starts going, okay, so episode three, let's see, scene one will be this. And he starts writing on a whiteboard. And like everything, and then at the end of the day, they take pictures of the whiteboards. And finally, after all of that, Alec will go and write an outline. So does he have already an idea of the arc of season? Like when you get there for season two, does he already have an idea of the arc of season two? Well, well, we didn't when I got there. So we got there literally in day one. It was like, okay, season one ends with them winning TechCrunch Disrupt. What would the next morning look like? Like literally what happens the next morning? So so, so and, and if I remember correctly, it's, that's when all the VCs are calling right. and that's the arc of the whole season. Yeah. So yeah. So my thing is like, you know, VCs are going to be like, you know, crawling all over them. And then then did they not know that like were your was your role in the writers room to basically explain what would happen? Yeah. I mean they they had it. I mean I don't mean to take credit, but I mean like yeah, that was partly why they asked me in is like what would tomorrow look like for them? And I was like okay, good. And then and then the idea of they get sued by by Hooli, right? Cuz they their idea was, oh, so this is great. So now they've killed they've kicked Hooli's ass. They go in and I was like, "No, no, no, no. Hooli will sue them." Like why would Hooli sue them? Hooli stole it from them. I was like, I know. That's why Hooli will sue them because that's what big companies do. They'll sue them and then tie them up. They can't. They don't have money to compete, so they'll end up. The lawsuit is just foreplay for you know for them to say, oh, well now now we're gonna buy you on the cheap, right? And so then you say, no, this really happened. Here's an example. Here's an example. And they go, oh, so they're like, oh, that would be cool. So Hooli sues them. Like, wow. That, we also had to deal with the idea that Peter Gregory, the actor who played Peter Gregory, died in real life. Oh, I didn't know During that. During season one, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then we're like, okay, he can't be in season two. Obviously, they had written around him for the end of season one, but what are we going to do in season two? And we said, let's have an, a big funeral for Peter Gregory. And then we can work into that dramatically. And at the funeral, Gavin Belson will now tell them he's suing them. So then it's like, okay, so now what happens? Now they've been sued. How do they get money? No one will rate, all the venture capitalists go away. That'll be funny. So we went and we talked to Mark Andreessen and said, what would happen, you know, in a lawsuit? He's like, yeah, no, no one will touch you now. If, if Hooli is suing you, everybody thinks you're a roadkill, so you'll never be able to raise money. So who would you go to if you 
we're in that situation. And Dreesen was like, well, you might go here, you might go like, who would be bad money? Who who would who who are the second and third tier financiers? Because we wanted like a really bad money guy, you know, just to complicate their lives. And uh, they ended up with that Russ Hanneman character, the did, guy with the doors that go up like this. So 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 did Mark Andreessen say a specific name, or did he say you'd go to to some uh, you know billionaire who got lucky? Yeah, and he, he had various ideas. Like you might go here, you might go there, and uh, you might go overseas, you might go international. To people who either aren't very savvy or aren't very nice, um, so yeah, he had. We had this like session with Andreessen where like we all went in the whole writing room. We flew up there like every year they do a field trip. They spend like a week going around Silicon Valley. It's a blast. And Andreessen was just like holding court, and he had so many ideas. And I think he really wanted to be a cameo in the show. He had like seriously, he's pitching ideas to Alec Berg. He's like, okay, you want another one? Here's another one. Like he just had like loads of ideas. And one one night they had dinner, but only the four main guys, not the all the rest of the rest of us scrubs. Like we had, we literally get like a per diem, and you go out and buy yourself a hamburger, right, or a burrito. <laughs> but the big guys had a dinner with it was Reed Hoffman, Mark Pincus, and. Maybe it was Stoppelman from Yelp. Are they? Anyway, I know the first two and a third and a third. Or maybe it was Drew Houston from Dropbox. Anyway, I can't remember. And the next day, I, we, so we all meet in the, in the hotel lobby. We're going to go out for the day to visit our companies together. And one guy said to me, he goes, yeah, we met with these guys last night. He's like, you ever heard of these guys? And he's, Something Hoffman. I said, Reed Hoffman? He's like, yeah, yeah, LinkedIn guy. I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, and some other guy, yeah. Uh, Mark, I said, Mark Pinkett. He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, he goes, are those guys, people know them? I'm like, yeah, dude. Like, people, yeah. He's like, are they rich? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, how much are they like, how, how much are those financial? So I said, we added up the, th- the the net worth of the three guys anyway. And it was like, well, you know, Reed Hoffman's got like, what, four billion. The other guy is two, whatever. And he, he was like, like, they didn't even know. They had dinner last night with these like multi billionaires. And they were just like, Oh, really? You know, like, like, anyway, they were, um, and then, you know, people, as the show caught on, people in Silicon Valley, in the real Silicon Valley, wanted to meet the writer guys. Like, so it's been this weird symbiotic relationship where they kind of feed on each other, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Did the actors go up as well? Not with us, but they may, maybe they do on, on other times. But we just we for us it was just the writers, and the, a couple of the producers, you know. And uh, we did a meeting once that year too with all these tech journalists around a table. Oh, I think I remember that. Um, is that where T.J. Miller says you guys have to realize we're making fun of you? No, because T.J. wasn't there. It was just okay. writers again. But it was like Quentin Hardy and Om Malik and uh, Brian Lamb. It was all these all these friends of mine. And like it's really fun, right? And then the TV writer guys afterwards were like, they're just like us, man. Like they just, they dress like us and they could think about stories the way we think of like, because the, the tech journalists are like, oh yeah, you should tell them the story about this or that. Like Brian Lamb told the story about getting the iPhone, um, that when, when Apple lost the iPhone in a bar and Brian yeah. got it and Gizmodo got it and then he tried to like ransom it back to Jobs. That's how that story got in season two because Brian Lamb told that whole story and they were like, oh, we got to have Richard do that with Gavin Belson. Like, Get the phone right. So that was, um, but yeah, they were all they were the the TV writer guys were all kind of 
interested in the journalists and the journalists who are interested in the TV writers. They're very similar kind of people, you know, except one group is paid a lot better than the... Who's paid more? Oh, the TV guys. So, so mean, some of them, some of them get paid pretty well. So you go back, you get back to the the writers' room. Now you have all these ideas from Mark Andreessen. Plus, Alec has some ideas. Yeah. Again, what are they? So, are you like pitching funny dialogues or filling in facts? Yeah, or? yeah, making jokes. And then we we sketched out the whole season. So we had it. We worked it from the outside in. So we had one, two, three, and we had ten, nine, eight, four. Seven, and like we had one in the middle. I think it was six. It was like impossible. Like we we got to here, we got to here, and then we couldn't figure out how to make the two connect. And literally, it got so bad. Like we spent like like weeks sitting there, like all day, and nothing would couldn't would get it all sketched out. Like yeah, that's it. And they would be like, no, that's it. Alec would erase it all. And then one week he sent us all home. He said just had the main four guys come into work, and we all got the week off. He's like, because you know we're making things worse. We have too many people in the room. Like it's really they really agonize. That's the one thing I never knew about comedy. Or TV in general, but comedy, I think, especially, like, it's really agonizing. These are not happy people. They're stressed out, like, like this isn't funny enough. Because then you think it's hilarious. Then they do the table read. They bring in all the actors and they do a table read, and it would just die. And they'd all look at each other, like, oh, shit. Does, like, does the table, like, I always imagine, like, in, on those, you know, so, so, like you said, all the actors sit around the table and they read the script. Are they reading it? Like, is it really supposed to be funny then? I mean, it's funny when they're acting it because then they're performing. Yeah. Is it really funny when they do a well, table? They, they, they're getting laughs, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and the real laughs, like, I mean, people yeah, are like... Yeah, people in the room are laughing, you know? And the, But, like, one time we left one and it was like, I could, even I could tell, like, oh, it didn't go so well. And I looked over and Mike Judge was sitting at the table, like, because we all leave. And it's just like Mike and Alec and a couple of the top guys stay. I think the actors even leave, but the HBO execs stay. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's when they get like the word from the issue. And I can see Mike Judge sitting there, like, just, like uh, waiting, like waiting to hear what the HBO guy said. Because you know, and they were gone for like an hour. And they came back and like, all right, we're gonna have to start over on this one. And like, uh, like I guess they just didn't like it. But I went to a Simpsons table read when I was out there one summer, and I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was great. People were because they they let a real audience come, not all, but they let a few people come in, uh-huh. guests, to get real response. Like I brought my kids and stuff. And so we're all laughing because they're doing the voices and everything. It was, it was funny as hell. And at the end, I said to the guy who invited me, this producer, writer guy, I was like, that was good, huh? And he's like, oh, no, didn't you see so-and-so's face? I'm like, no. He's like, oh, no, that was terrible. Like, we're going to be up all night, like, rewriting this. this was, that was like a bomb. Like, they, they really want, like, joke density. You know, they want joke, joke, like, you don't have a big lull. Do you think that's the big the difference between, I mean, there's so many sitcoms on TV right now. You, you think that's the difference between... Like The Simpsons, which has been around for a thousand seasons, and Silicon Valley, which is clearly like you know already achieved you know comedic cult status, uh, and and kind of these weaker sitcoms, you know that just just don't go anywhere. They're not really funny. There's a laugh track or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like maybe that intensity is is what what drives the yeah you know, makes it's them not so that funny. funny. It's hard. I think it's hard to be funny. I, I, I was. I wasn't that funny. Like they, they were. Those and you guys, were a humor writer. I mean, you did the fake Steve Jobs. Yeah, but I was like, I just shut up. I didn't pitch jokes. Like those guys are like once in a while, but like most of mine sucked. I mean, they were, they were funny. Like, like, I, like I what's the difference? Like, what? Well, well, I don't even know. And like, also, why, why wouldn't you take a guy like T.J. Miller, who's a stand-up comedian, writes comedy for yeah. for his live his other living? Would he ever be in the writers' room and say, "No, may have the actor say this because it's funny." They didn't have in the room, but they what they did is they would shoot the script, they would shoot the scene with the actors, and then they would do more takes of letting the actors just um, improvise. And a lot of what's ends up on the show is that. 
So you start to think, like, as one of the writers who spent, like, 14 weeks, they're like, why did you even have us? Like, a lot of the episodes, because I would leave, you know? And then I'd watch the show months months later. I'd be like, those episodes don't look like anything like what we wrote. Right? So why even have us? I mean, we were just, and I think even that's the process. It's like, spend 14 weeks with a bunch of writers, quote-unquote, like, churning out stuff and getting basic narrative arc and blah, blah, blah. Then you go in and shoot that, but then you ask the actors to do it. And then the, the real, you know who the real writers are? Like the director, whoever directs the episode, and the editor. Like basically Mike and Alex sit there and cut the episode together. Hmm. And they move stuff around. Like, yeah, maybe that was on page two in the original, but we're going to put that scene over here now. And it really happens in the editing. Like that's how they make a TV show. Well, it seems like the arc also, because that's where all, all the tension is. It's where the problems of all the characters are. Like whoever kind of outlines the, the overall thing. Like, I bet you that didn't change so much. No, right. So you got to get to the get start at the beginning, get to the end of season of episode ten, and like this, you know, yeah. like like you know, he, Richard has more and more problems, you know, running his company, raising money, and the problems get more and more difficult until this sort of you know climactic ending. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. So and there's, so there's all these little decisions that have to get made. And I think. What, what about the structure of uh, uh, an episode itself? Like, is it uh, ha, you know people say there's three parts or 10 beats or like how do you write like oh, yeah, yeah. a TV script I, or an I, episode a lot of shows they do three acts I think they do act one act two act three Alec Berg for whatever reason does not believe in that so there is no official act structure on those scripts it's just all one thing he just writes but even so you roughly when you're looking at it on a board you can kind of tell this that's sort of roughly what you would think of as act one is act two act three but he does not use he doesn't like to think of that structure. So he just has 27, I don't know how many minutes it is, but X number of minutes of stuff. And in fact, then the question is like, do you have it all up on a whiteboard? You're like, how many pages is that going to fill? And then you're like, how many pages, how many minutes is that going to fill? So you, it's very rough, but he, he, I think those guys have just done it for so long. Like he can tell, mm-hmm. you know, where it is. So let me ask you a question. I've pitched this. If I take an exaggerated version of that, like let's say some billionaire gives away all his belongings to charity, all his money to charity, just enough to live in Airbnbs and uh, you know get food delivered and things like that. People are kind of interested in this idea and this concept. And even the story of me has been in the New York Times and, and so on. Yeah. I'm not a billionaire, but I'm taking saying an exaggerated version. Um, but you're close to a billionaire, right? No, no, <laughs> nowhere, nowhere, a fraction of a fraction. But uh, uh, what? How? What? Throw an idea on the wall. What would you? What, what? What would be a problem that person would have that could be like a TV show? Originally, I thought that could be a, a scripted character within another TV show. How can that be a TV show? Yeah, like that's like a Seinfeld character, like George's cousin. Who? Yeah, yeah, he's like, well, is he homeless? I don't know if I call him homeless, right? That's like, is that homeless? I don't know. I guess it is. Like, my, well, he lives in Airbnbs, and oh, he's a millionaire, or he's a billionaire, but he's homeless, right? Like, he's, no, my kids thought I was homeless initially because that because I wrote about it, and their their friends' parents read my writing, and their friends were coming up to them and saying, you know, Josie, is your dad homeless? Okay, <laughs> and yeah, they didn't know, so they came and visited me, and obviously, I wasn't homeless. Well, how old are your kids? Eighteen and fifteen. And where do they live? Uh, about sixty miles north. Oh, in New York State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With your ex-wife. Yeah. Wow. So they did they flip out? Well, they called me and asked, and then they visited, and I was actually staying in a very nice Airbnb. I actually I wasn't staying in an Airbnb then. Oh. And the story was I had helped someone ten years ago make some money, and we had become friends, 
and he wasn't staying in his place and he had a beautiful, beautiful, magnificent place. So I was staying there. It's like a two-story bookcase, penthouse. And uh, so my kids were like, you know, daddy, you're not homeless. Like, you know, and so that's even the idea of it being minimalist is sort of ludicrous when, when there actually are homeless people out there. But like, what's, well, What's I think kind of one's a, a reality show, right? That's the most obvious one. It's like, yeah, so let's say not reality show. But yeah, because but yeah, because you know, so what sets it in motion, right? There's the guy, there's the character, but what sets it in motion? Someone has something has to. Well, there has to be. A, I have to have a problem, or the, the character has to have a problem. Of or it's the other one. The, the other the other one. You start with before. The, so the stasis is whatever your life was before, building to the decision to like throw everything away, right? Like yeah. that's where it begins. Like okay, and I don't know what brought you to that. Moment. What brought you to the moment of, of throwing everything away? Uh, it's a long story. We'd have to. That'd have to be a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll do another one. But but uh, the, so, but that's that's the moment, right? The guy snaps and just says, "I'm selling everything. I'm giving everything away. Whatever I'm going to do, and I'm going to have 15." Did you pick a number? 15? Was it a real number? Like no, no. It was, it was just, like you put a constraint on the number of things. Yeah. No. It was just um, the New York Times story about it. Said I'm gonna go read that. Fifteen right. items, yeah. but it, it's roughly that. Like I have, you know, a couple outfits, and everything has to fit in like one carry-on bag. Wow. So there are some rules. Like, yeah. There are constraints. Like I won't buy something unless I throw something else out. Yeah, yeah. And so okay. and I have no books because I have a Kindle. Right. So, um, but so the, yeah. So, so but then what happens to that guy, right? Yeah. It seems like what, what, what gets you through the season? You yeah. Season one, right? What's the arc of that season? We should do this. We should uh, we should brainstorm on this because yeah. there's got to be something. Maybe he, yeah, I don't know. All right, think about know. it. Yeah, yeah, right. Home, homework that, assignment. <laughs> yeah, no, that, because I'm, I'm, I've realized something about myself over the years. It's like, I'm not very good, like, on the spot, but I'm the type that, like, an hour later, I'm driving down the road, and, like, and I think, oh, I should have said that to that guy. You know, like, when someone insults you, and I always think of the good comeback, like, a day later. You know what I mean? You, I, usually, same. usually I'm pretty good, but when it comes to, like, this one, thing uh i'm having a i'm having a hard time can't i can't get through it because maybe there is no you know maybe it's just interesting like an anecdote but it's not an interesting storyline there's no story there. i was thinking he could be you know working in a as a, a shelving books in a bookstore and no one knows and he's always like solving people's problems you know in some weird way but then still like it, it doesn't write itself like some tv formats like even silicon valley not that it writes itself but i feel like like you said what happens the next day after the, he wins the TechCrunch thing? Okay, we know all the venture capitalists will be calling. They're going to go into a feeding frenzy where they'll do ridiculous things to you know, convince them to get money. Then something bad will happen where they're no longer able to get money and you know, kind of works its way through. But that's still, right. But then they still get, the thing I noticed about TV, because I always thought like, oh, and they, then the rest of it just happens. Like, no, like, like they sit there and sweat bullets for weeks with a team of people you t- imagine, so the situation you just mentioned, okay, this is the deal, blah, blah, blah. Now take 10 people who have done a lot of writing, who are pretty smart, funny people, sit them in a room, and just let them brainstorm for a week, like eight hours, 10 hours a day with whiteboards, and like see what you get. But that's, that's the process. And with the same kind of naked fear, except even worse is like in your case, if you can't think of anything, well, it's no big deal. In their case... Right, they're paid, they, they, have, they have to they, air. They, 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 something has to go on the air, right? Yeah. Like, so I asked Alec about that because I was like, with us, we're so far in advance, and it's only 10 episodes, and we're working in the summer, and then you shoot, we're going to be fine. With Seinfeld, they would be at the, like, literally at the brink. 
like the night before and they would rip the whole thing up or it would all fall apart. Like they really were going almost live. Like in that terror of not knowing, like shit, man, we got to have something and it's like Thursday, you know? Yeah. Like they really lived with that deadline pressure, which, and, and he said, and he also said to me once, he said like, you know, that's why they're not all that good. Like they're not all good. They're not all equally good. Some, some of the shows we did weren't that good. Like we knew it. Like we just, sorry, it's, Although Larry Larry David, you know who who at least for the first whatever six seven seasons I don't know how many seasons, he had an interesting. I mean he was the one rewriting at the end on that Thursday night or whatever. Him with Jerry I guess, but Larry David was like doing a lot of the writing, and he had I guess the philosophy that he was going to do a storyline for each of the four characters, like a main storyline, and then have them intertwine. And this was kind of new. And that kind of drove that was like that was like this yeah. unique force that kind of drove each episode, yeah. you know. And part, part, partly that was like a leadership skill. He didn't want to disappoint any of the actors and keep them. He wanted to keep them all motivated. Uh, but and and then the other thing he did, and maybe I'm explaining this out of turn. You probably know all this. No, I don't. I actually don't. He he would fire the writing staff or most of the writing staff each year because he'd get new writers to tell their New York stories. To have new storylines for the characters, so that's what Alec gets. Alec does the same thing. Like that room turns over, turns over. It was not, which is, and Alec is one of the few people who stayed. Right, he survived because Larry liked him. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that was why, but yeah, I knew he had done several years, but I didn't know that Seinfeld room turned over constantly. The, the so does the Silicon Valley. Room. Like I, I had heard a lot of shows, you get hired in, and then you just stay for the seven year run of the show unless you really you know do something horrible. Like basically, and they might add more people, but you could stay. But in that room, it just turns over and turns over. Even, uh, sorry, and I think for the same reason. Alec they need more Silicon Valley stories. Yeah, like he got all of mine. Like he doesn't need me anymore. You know what I mean? Like, what does he need me for? Right. Well, I mean, there's always new ones and new interpretations of the stories that are happening. Like, what's going on in Silicon Valley right now? What's hot? What's not? Yeah. So they always need someone who can interpret the news. But they'll get every year a new batch. They had Dick Costello one season when I was. Oh there. yeah, yeah. He worked two days a week. Came down and like spent two days a week in the room. He, he was in an episode in season three, I think. That's right. He yeah, got, he got a cameo in that little uh, dinner scene or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. he wrote the forward of uh, one of my books. Did he? Yeah, a, a book I wrote in 2013 called Choose Yourself. He wrote he wrote the forward. He's a good guy, right? Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, I, I got to know him a little bit, and uh, he's a funny guy too. You know, he went to. Um, I'll tell you a little story that I think he either told me or no, he told it in a speech. He was a in Second City, you know, the improv group. Oh yeah, uh, and there was once a reunion of all the Second City guys. So he runs into Steve Carell, who's from you know the Office and oh, yeah, and yeah. so on. And you know they're all saying what they're doing. Of course, Steve Carell's doing The Office. He's done many things. He's done many movies. And Dick Costello's like, "Well, I'm the CEO of Twitter." And Steve puts his hand on Dick's shoulder and says, oh, "I'm sorry, it didn't work out for you." You know, because he wasn't <laughs> succeeding as an improv comedian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh well, yeah. So, and that's a, that's a, it's a good uh, consolation prize. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so okay. So, so you're in the room, yeah. um, and are you? Helping to to figure out the critical plot points. Like, what's your proudest moment from from that first season you were doing with you know the second season of Silicon Valley, but your first season there? I think those plot points about the lawsuit and about how they would have you know what would happen the VCs and and, uh, and yeah um, and a few other contributions. There was a, a a a big there was a sequence in the middle of that season where uh, I forget the name of the company, but some company 
offers to buy them, and the, or then they want to merge them. And there, there, was a, there was a big problem in the middle, plot-wise, that we couldn't figure out. And I, I managed to sort of crack the code a little bit and put together, like, the glue to get from here to here, you know. And, and so there were certain ideas of mine that showed up that were kind of fun. I had a joke about tech. They're not tech. They're not real reporters. They're, tech, they're not real journalists. They're tech journalists. Like, when you don't think these guys are going to go to jail for you with that kind of thing. So a few things here and there. But... um. I like um, Russ's, there's some lingo that was used in the show that kind of became, you know, lingo in Silicon Valley. Like Russ saying he was no longer a three comma guy when he he went less than a billion. Yeah, like that has become a thing that people talk about now, right? I don't know who came up with that line, but it sounds like there's a writer on the show named Dan O'Keefe. And it sounds like something he would say, but I don't know. That might have even come out in shooting, Hmm. you know? And, and, and they had that tequila, Trace Comas, Trace Comas. Oh, I don't, I don't know, remember that. Russ Hammond, yeah, had had his own brand of tequila called. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Trace Comas, but it was like get it like three commas or something. I think was yeah. Then they were going to actually make a branded tequila, the show, or Mike and Alec or whoever they were going to make. They were actually going to make a tequila, like the one in the show, and sell it. I don't, I don't think they ever did. So 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 then you 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 have this great exciting time. It's like your dream job. It's what you had been aiming for since getting your MFA in creative writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got after the fourteen weeks are over. Did you consider trying to stay in Hollywood and maybe pitching some other shows to Larry Charles or whatever? Or yeah, yeah, do- no, I did. I, I and I did do that, and I pitched some things, and uh, have had some meetings, and uh, I've. Uh, and then, and the original idea for Disrupted I had was like, oh, this could be a movie or a TV show about the old guy working in a cookie company. And I thought, if I do it as a spec script, it won't, you know, it'd be hard to sell. But well, what was as, the movie that where there was like an old guy? De Niro. Uh, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The intern. Yeah. So, yeah. So as I'm, so I sold the book. So I thought I'll do a book. Then the book, just like with Fake Steve, if I had gone in with a TV show cold, like I got its idea. It's like. A guy like Steve Jobs, they were like, no, but like because they had the book and Larry Charles read the book and he liked the book, then he's like, ah, now I have a vision because I can see you have to start with some IP, right? So um, I thought, I'll do a book. And then then I can go into studios and networks with this book, yeah? Uh, And then as I was writing the book, someone said to me, what's your book about? I said, it's about this funny book about an old guy. They're like, oh, like that De Niro movie. I'm like, what De Niro movie? Like, oh, it's coming out next month. There's a De Niro movie. I saw a trailer for it. I was like, ah. So, I don't know if that killed off the potential for my, I mean, my book's different than that, but um, yeah, but that was my original idea. And then, so I've had a couple of meetings. I pitched it as a family comedy at ABC, but it didn't, didn't go. I, I've had some meetings where I pitched it. Different people have read the book and want to talk about adapting it, or it's just, you know, hard to get it like set up at the right place. And then I've had other ideas. I've, you know, I've had other show ideas that I've tried pitching, but so far, nothing has. So you go after the fourteen weeks are over. You go back to HubSpot, and mm-hmm. was that such a like you know? And then and this is after they kind of were encouraging you to leave. So it just seemed like things just went straight to hell when you got back. Yeah, they went pretty bad. Like that was like it was very clear. Like we really you didn't get the hint. So we have to make it more. We have to be give you more of a hint. Like yeah, we really would like you to leave. And I think there's a, a lesson here in that you know so you. I, I'm always asking your age. You're like 54 then at this point. Yeah. You're there a year and a yeah, half. You're yeah, 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 yeah. So you're 54. You had 
obviously achieved some some highs and some lows in your life, some some dream things. You'd published novels, you'd worked on a TV show, you worked for a hot tech company, you worked for yeah. the best journalism places. But bad things happen no matter what. Like, yeah. you know, every life is almost like a the TV season. You have like the overall arc, but then ups and downs in every show. Yeah. And how did you deal with kind of going from like this amazing high of working on, you know, one of the best shows out there right now to back to HubSpot where like didn't weren't you pounding the table aren't you guys going to treat me better I was just I'm on the hottest TV show in the the world yeah no, I know I I wasn't and uh I mean I kind of felt like I I must I must have some some talent because they was just on this show and you know whatever so I, I I but no like it just I went back and it was like really really no you're like failing you suck you can't even do this like i was like the supposed to put together a podcast and, and it's like completely the boss i had was just telling me like you suck you're not even doing this you're failing you're not gonna make it here you know this is only for the did best. you bite back like and say look i just put together the best tv show in the world and now you're telling me i can't even be like a gopher on a podcast i didn't know like you know it's like a you know it's funny like that kind of abuse you sort of internalize it and start to believe it like it starts to get like Maybe like I a really Stockholm syndrome yeah, type like of thing. Maybe I really do suck. Maybe this guy's right. Like I'm totally failing. I keep trying, and I'm trying to make a go of it. And uh, um, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it's very, very destructive. It really is very, very. I mean, there was part of me that thought, like, you know, uh, this is unfair. But, um, uh, but it was more just like. Whether it's logical or not, this guy wants me to leave. Like he wants me to go. And finally, finally, I did pull him aside and said, "Look, I don't know why you're writing like this. I'm looking as far as I can to get another job. I will get out of here as fast as I can. Okay, I promise you, right? And you know, just lay off me. You don't have to ride me. Like you, you, the message got through. I get it. You want me out of here? I will leave. Just give me a, a few weeks to find a job and just get off my back. You know." And then that didn't last long. He sort of said he would, but like it was, just, it was just toxic. And he and I had been friends, you know. So yeah. it was weird. It was a weird psychological. Yeah. Well, I think I think you know at this time to to kind of set the scene, you, uh, HubSpot was getting closer and closer to an IPO. They had filed right. their financials, right. yeah, and yeah, yeah. and so probably everyone was kind of jockeying for position. Nobody wanted to be let go right then before the IPO. Yeah, and everybody was stressed out. It was a very stressful time, and I think he had stress from his boss. And um, yeah, I think they were really wanted to get through that IPO. And I, I kind of wanted to just hang out and at least be there for the IPO, which I think was October, November of what year would that? Twenty fourteen, I guess. And who uses their product? Because I've never met anyone who uses their product. It's kind of like a Salesforce sort of product, right? Yeah, it's it's marketing automation. So it's a little. It's mostly small businesses, small companies, and they keep track of. Customers who shop in their store, yeah, yeah, send or, them emails, uh, yeah, and you can launch. You can write a blog, and you can track who visits the blog, and you can create uh, a call to uh, an, uh, an offer. Like you can create an ebook, and then you might have a blog post about about the blog post might be uh, seven tips for making a great podcast, right? And you read it, and then it says, "Want to learn more? Download our free ebook." Everything you need to know about making a podcast, and you click on it, and to get the ebook, you have to give them your email address. I mean, that's the call to action. So you, you, you <clears throat> and then 
I you know, give them your email address and then they send you the, the ebook and now you can read. So a lot, and a lot of it is content aimed at uh, small businesses. So little mom and pop firms or a flower shop or a plumber. So like, you know, it actually is very valuable to small companies that don't really know anything, say, about how to be on the internet or how to mm-hmm. make these things. How do you snap? Can I use snap as a marketing tool? And then they'll create an ebook and gate it behind a form mm-hmm. and you, uh, you know, and then they just start badgering those leads. They throw the leads over the wall into like this pit of telemarketers who just hound you till you, and it's a subscription model. So it's SaaS, it's delivered over the cloud. You sign up for a year subscription. Okay. And so, so you're getting closer to the IPO. They're, they're, they're pushing you out. You kind of survive to the IPO, right? Yeah. And, and then, uh, uh, the second you confide in this, the, your, your boss is the character you call the character Trotsky throughout the whole book. That's not his real name. You, you mentioned yeah. real name in the epilogue, but um, uh, you kind of tell him at one point, okay, you're going to quit. But then immediately he puts you through the system and and escorts you out. Yeah, yeah, that was weird. Like I, I it was right before Thanksgiving, and I found a job that would start in January, so. I'm like, I, I, funny, when I tell the story now, even when I think back, I think I'm like such a creature of like, I don't know, working class or middle class values. Like, I, I, uh, it was very important to me to like not, to always have a job, you know? Like, and so it's very important to me like, okay, I'm going to start January 1st in the new job. So I gave them notice and I said, look, you know, so it's uh, going to be Thanksgiving next week. So everybody be out most of the week anyway. Then we'll come back. It'll be December except the last two weeks of December are the holidays. So but basically, I'll take the next few weeks and make sure the podcast is handed off to someone else. We get a nice glide path there. And um, and then I'll leave for the Christmas holidays and I'll be done. Like in most places I worked, I think that would have been like normal. And they'd be like, okay, well, you know, we'll pay you through the end of the year and, you know, you do your thing, do the handoff. And like that was seemed to me normal. In fact, I thought, nicer. I could have waited and just waited till... December 15th and said, sure, I'm out of here. Or, or, or never tell them at all. And I can, mm. But anyway. Um, and that was a Thursday, I think. Wednesday. Anyway, whatever day it was. And he said, oh, he called me later. He's like, yeah, can you come in tomorrow and just, uh, we'll start up, you know, the, all the paperwork and you've got to set up an exit interview. The HR people want to talk to you about, you know, said, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'll come in tomorrow. So uh, I went in and there's an email. I check my email. I log in, check out my email. And there's an email from the CMO telling everybody, oh, just a, from like the day before, saying, just want you to know, you know, Dan is leaving and we wish him all the best. And his last day will be, today's his last day. So, you know, and I was like, today's my last day. What? Like, no. I, and then I was like, I said to my boss, like, dude, what's this? And he's like, well, come on, let's go, let's go and talk right now. And like we went into this little room and he's like, here's your exit paperwork, here's your termination letter, give me your laptop, thanks, don't touch anything, uh, bye. And um, Did you get paid through the end of the year? I wasn't going to, but then I haggled a little bit and did get paid through the end of the year. But uh, at first they were like, no, everything stops tomorrow, your health insurance stops tomorrow, everything's done, bye, see you later, bye. I was like, wow, dude, that's cold, like that's... I mean, I don't know if I ever did anything to make those guys really hate me that much. And I don't think I did because I've heard from other people. Like, the same. There was a woman who got fired after 12 weeks, first job out of college. I said, you're just not excited enough. One Wednesday, see you, bye. Don't even take your stuff. 
We'll mail it to you. Just get your coat and go. We'll mail all the stuff, all your little knickknacks on your desk. We'll put them in a box and mail them to you. Like people would get canned all the time. Like did that. she? Did she cry? She cried. She was a young yeah. woman from not from Boston. Suddenly walks out into the cold in February, like literally it's the middle of winter. She's 22 years old. Her parents are in South Carolina or something, North Carolina, and she's all by herself in this city with no job and no savings and. And yeah, it just breaks down crying and then like has to, knowing she has to call home to her parents and who are, I think, kind of strict and a little old fashioned and we're, you know, and disappoint them and tell them like, you know, I, I know you put me through college and everything and I've just screwed up. Like it was horrible. Like this poor kid. She said her parents actually were very nice to her. Her parents were. Yeah, sure. Understanding. But so, so, so you, you leave and then you, what's, you, you, you do this epilogue to your book like oh, right. you, you, you leave, you write this book disrupted about this experience, and you and definitely I encourage people to read it. It's a page turner. Uh, you could read it in like a couple of days, and uh, so much stuff happened to you. But the epilogue was fascinating. Apparently, they tried to like hack into your emails to find the book, and <coughs> people got fired at the highest C levels. Yeah, and yeah. like, did you ever find out specifically what happened? No, I mean, won't tell me. I mean, I've asked, but so, so they. They, um, yeah, I was writing the book. Uh, at one point, I got an email from the CEO asking me, what's the book about? And I told him, said, blah, blah, blah. I went back and forth. And then he went dark. Then a month later, I'm at my desk one day at the end of the day, and someone sends me a link. Dude, is this you? And I open up a link, and it says, we fired our CMO for cause. We sanctioned our CEO. And this other guy who had been my boss, VP guy, uh, resigned before we could decide whether to turn it. And I was like, wow, that's harsh. Like they actually included him in the press release, even though they didn't have, he had already left. And the investigation must have been at a high, I mean, you, the FBI yeah. was mentioned. Like, right. it, it, no, so they said, and so we've turned this all over to law enforcement. We've conducted our own internal investigation with a law firm, determined this is what we need to do. So these guys are gone. It was, and it was efforts to obtain the manuscript of a book. And they didn't say who, and I think it's gotta be me. And next thing you know, I get a call from the FBI saying, yeah, we're investigating this. And we need you to come in as a witness. And I'm like, great, now they'll finally tell me what's going on. But the FBI won't tell me, and the assistant U.S. attorney won't tell me. They asked me a million questions, and I answered them all. And then they, I did a FOIA request, and I got some documents, and um, heavily redacted, though. But basically, there was more than that. There was some sort of conspiracy to extort me or extort the publisher. They were going to try to get dirt on someone and then say, if you don't kill this book, we'll release these compromising stuff, right? But I never had any blackmail threat. The publisher swears he never had any blackmail threat. So it might have just been they so were thinking about it. How did this it. even start? Like, how did this? How did anyone know there was something bad going on? Like, who? I, that's the other thing. I don't know. Apparently, I think someone internally found out about it and ratted them out to the general counsel. So there was a whistleblower. I think so. And the whistleblower. And, oh, and then also some. According to the FBI docs, there was some kind of a, a John Doe lawsuit filed in California that they thought, it says, which HubSpot people thought might be related to the extortion attempts. Like they were trying to extort someone in California. I, I don't know. Like you can't really, even reading these things, and I should go back and look at them with fresh eyes, but I, I poured through these things. I could never piece together what had happened. Now, the thing that drives me crazy is HubSpot commissioned this a full report by a law firm, and they have it. The board members all have it. They could just give me a copy, so I would at least know. 
Like, did they hack my computers? Did they break into my house? You know, I don't know what they did. Now, it may be, uh, one lawyer suggested to me, it may be that really the reason the whole thing was dropped is they talked about doing all these things and sort of started doing some stuff and then got caught. And so nothing really happened. So there's nothing to worry about, so, uh, which maybe is the case. But well, I don't know if they would then fire everyone. Right, yeah. What's the what's even, or are they guilty of, like conspiracy to maybe do something? Like, I don't, yeah, right. So I, so, just, so I don't know. So I, I've never been able to figure out what they did, but it was very scary in the sense that like I was writing this book about them being a bunch of goofballs with a kooky culture and, you know, talking about changing the world. I never thought they were like really, really dangerous bad guys. Then I started thinking maybe, maybe they are. You know, yeah. I don't know. Right? Well, there's that kind of money involved. I mean, you know, the founders went from having whatever money they had to you know a hundred million more. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a lot. They don't want to be you know, and they had tens of thousands of customers. They they didn't you know things get dangerous. Well, I think also there were. I, Why don't you go back to Silicon Valley and now you have a whole story with that? <laughs> right, exactly. Right, the guy getting hacked—that's not a bad idea. But th- there was also, I think they were more concerned about gossipy stuff about maybe people behaving badly at work, and um, mm. that they thought was going to be in the book, which I didn't know anything about any stuff like that. And even if I had, I I, I wouldn't have put it in there. I wouldn't try to like you know ruin someone's marriage or whatever. Yeah. Like you know, I, I the book is supposed to be a funny book about me and kookiness, you know? Um, it wasn't a big, dark, investigative expose of this company, blah, blah, blah. You know, nobody cares about the, That was the other point. When I was selling the book, like every publisher that I talked to said, you know, they like the book, they like the pitch, and a bunch of people bid on it, but it was like, like, but we don't care about the company. This can't be a book about this company because nobody gives a shit about this company. Right, I think I really see the book as uh, the company is in is in the background and it's yeah. a book about someone in their 50s going through this major life crisis and how he solves this problem, and yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, something that everybody in their fifties is going to go through to to some extent. You know, there's a spectrum. Yeah, no, no, I know. So, but the, in their mind, like they're so in their bubble that they kind of thought this is a book about hustle. Like that's how it got played in the Boston media and how they destroyed. It. It's like this is a guy who hates husband. He's writing a book about husband. It's like it's not a book about husband. It really isn't. And uh, frankly, uh, after the book came out, then of course other people got in touch with me, and I have heard some things, and I thought, oh. I wonder if they thought I knew that. Because if they thought I knew that, and if they thought that might be in a book, that probably would have scared them. But mm. it was things that I didn't know at the time. That now, of course, I, I hear about I'm like, ooh, that was... Can you say any of them? No. Yeah. <laughs> I'll t- not on tape. I um, mean, some of it's horrific. And then, and then, so the next summer, did you go back to Silicon Valley? Yes. To- While I was working on the book, I took a break, went out to... to LA for four months or three or four months and worked again on the sh- on season three. Was it fun? Yeah, I mean it's kind of fun. I mean it's I just tell people it's a lot more fun to watch the show than to write the show to be on the because you just sit there doing nothing a lot. You just hang out in rooms, you know, talking, listen to other people talk. Because imagine a business meeting with 10, 12, 14 people in it. Yeah, you know, and you're not the main person. You're down at the other end of the table. I would sit there with Dick Costell like this, like sometimes for a whole day, huh. like a whole day. Just looking at each other while other people talk. Huh. And every once in a while I'd be like, Dick, is that was that accurate? I'd be like, Yeah, no, I think that's well, you know, and they'd be like, Okay, thanks, Dick. Bye. Blah, 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 blah. Like, like just you spent a lot of time doing nothing. And then um when they were filming, were you ever there? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit. And that was really cool. I always wanted to see how a show gets made, you know, and mm-hmm. like the cameras in the rooms and stuff. Again, it's like, you know, it's, yeah, to me it was very cool. And I, I liked it. I, and, and so, what are you doing now? 
I am I am writing another book. I have a contract to write a book and what's it about? Uh, workplace issues and sort of building on some of the stuff that was in disrupted that is mm-hmm. be not about HubSpot but about aspects of 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 work that I think are interesting. Um, and I may I'm still trying to develop disrupted as either a movie or a TV show and keep having meetings about that. So. All right. Well, well, Dan Lyons, author of Disrupted, uh, I highly recommend everyone read the book. I've I've actually read it twice now because I read it when it first came out, and I read it in preparation of this podcast. Really enjoyed it both times. Second time had the epilogue. Uh, oh, I I don't think I remember reading the epilogue the first time, so it must oh. have came out later, right? Did or what? Did you have the epilogue? The epilogue was on the first book, but there was a little more in the paperback epilogue. Did okay, you read the paperback. No, no, I had the I had the well, when it first came out. But you know what? On Kindle, I think they've updated it now. Oh, okay. Maybe you got the updated epilogue. Yeah. Maybe. So, so well, I highly recommend the book, and I also recommend uh, people watch Silicon Valley. It's one of my favorite shows. So, thanks Thank very you. much. Thanks very much. Next time on the James Altucher Show. By the time this podcast is out, this book will be out. What if this book just doesn't do well, and you get like the worst reviews? And you know you work so hard on it. You know the more you work on something, the more. Here's the thing. It's funny. I've come to peace with it because I've thought about this. Listen, I would love to hit number one New York Times bestseller, but I'm also like, if I didn't get on the list at all, how would I feel? My ego would be hurt, and I'd be sad, and I'd be frustrated. But I believe, like I've become so at peace with it already. Either way, whatever happens, it's more important to me to get the message out than to get the result. I haven't put my whole life into one book mm-hmm. where if like as an athlete, my whole life was around being a college player, making pros. And if I didn't make it, then my life was over. This isn't my whole life, one project. And I think if it doesn't hit the list or it doesn't do this, like what's the lesson? I think what's the lesson is a very important mantra. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show. I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. I really enjoy reading these. It means a lot to me, and I'm grateful for your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.